Today's message title is Growing Up with Growing Pains. Our series text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, reading quickly. I'm excited. We have four baptisms at the end of this service today. And so that, that will be the pinnacle, that will be the height of worship in our service as we celebrate these four who are making a life, they have, they have already made a life-changing commitment to Christ. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. Everybody say, pleases God. As we have taught you, he says, you live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. One thing this morning, this is our one thing that if you don't get anything else out of this message, I want you to grab this and take it home with you. Growth is not automatic. It requires love and responsibility. Say that with me. Growth is not automatic. It requires love and responsibility. Look at your neighbor and say, growth is not automatic. It requires love and responsibility. When I was growing up in school, if you failed, you didn't get a social promotion because you were a big boy. You stayed in that grade and you repeated it again. And guess what? That's how God operates. You didn't get it that right on that time around the mountain. Guess what? We're going to revisit. You're going to be looking at some familiar territory. This looks familiar. I've been here before. How many of you know if you're going through something and you know you've seen it before, God's just taking you back through the classroom again because you didn't get it the first time? Now, that's not a shame on you. I'm just thankful that I've got a God who loves me enough that he's not going to just stick me out there and graduate me and I can't even read but he's going to make sure that I learn what I'm supposed to learn. Too many times we want to bind the devil thinking he's causing us problems and God is putting pressure on us to get us ready for something greater that if we don't learn how to do it now, we won't be ready for it then. Just because you are 50 years old doesn't mean that has no indication of where your spiritual maturity is. You can be 75 years old chronologically, and you can be five years old in the spirit. We want to grow. We want to grow up. We want to learn how to walk in the spirit, how to be led by the spirit of God. We want to be mature believers. We don't want to stay infants. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 that you'd be no longer children tossed to and fro. Now, the paradox of faith is that as we grow, we become more childlike in our faith. There's a difference in being childlike in our faith and still being childish. Children are immature. There's this thing that has come about in a new term in our vernacular, in our English jargon. Uh, some of the millennials call it adulting. Adulting. That's when you really are fully disconnected from home, not just geographically moved out of the bedroom into your own place, but you are fully disconnected from the umbilical cord of parental financial support. You're on your own. Don't shout me down now. <laughs> I remember every phase, every age, I remember telling Dawn, man, if I can get this kid out of diapers, I can afford to get us a new car. And then there was something else that would hit. And Drew had to have two rounds of braces. And... And, and, and just and there's always something, always something going on. And I remember I just, I, I, I was so grateful when, when Abby finally got some things set up in her life and she got off my payroll. <laughs> and I actually had a couple of nickels to rub together. 
I could afford to buy a new piece of clothing once in a while. <laughs> and, and, and everything that was going for somebody else, all of a sudden I had a little bit of something to work with. And, 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 and it's a blessing when, when our children grow up and they take personal responsibility and they're actually adulting and they're making wise decisions because we as parents were faithful to lead them and guide them and build kingdom principles of wisdom and the word of God into them. How many, think, how many of you know there's nothing like seeing that in your kids' lives? I'm so thankful. I'm so blessed. My little, my little grandson, Henry, Henry Wade, is just growing. I'm going to tell you, he was a little thin and long for a while. I said, you know what? He needs to put some weight on. He doesn't look like my side of the family. He, he, he's filling out now. So he's looking like a smith now. Praise God. He's, do, he's filling out, and I'm trying to draw it in as much as I can. Paul gives us three leadership pictures in the front end of 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. In chapter 1, we see the picture of Paul the evangelist, his faithful preaching births new babies into the kingdom of God. When we talk about the word, the kingdom of God, the kingdom is the rule of God. The kingdom is not something set for the future, but it's something that is from, inter, from, from everlasting to everlasting. The kingdom of God is in all time. The kingdom of God is not just, just a thousand years in the future. I'm not doing away with that, but I'm telling you, the kingdom of God, Jesus came preaching, change your mind, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your reach. It's available to you right now. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost is inside you, so the kingdom is inside you. So you walk into a world filled with darkness, but you're a light bearer. You're a Christopher. You're a Christ bearer. You're a light bearer. You're carrying something that will dispel the darkness and the confusion around you. If we as Christians, if we as the church can learn how to do that and not be preachy, not be looking down our long noses of Pharisaism or judgmentalism or fundamentalism in the Bible Belt South. So Paul preaches faithfully and people are born into the kingdom. But now he's got a whole church full of babies and he's trying to grow them up. And so in, in, in I keep wanting to say Philippians. And it's because Philippi and Thessalonica are right there together. And he, he wrote the Philippian letter from the jail and he, he heads to Philippi and he births his church. Second chapter of First Thessalonians. It's not about the faithful evangelist. It's about the faithful pastor. So Paul is pastoring the people. He is leading them. He is guiding them because God uses people to take the gospel to the lost. He also uses ordinary people to nurture those babes to maturity. Everybody say adulting. Say grow up. Growing up is hard to do sometimes. I remember wrestling down image issues and just the challenge of competition among all the guys in junior high school and the things that some people said and laboring, stri striving to not let that lodge in my heart so that it would have become an identifier for me. Because people will say a lot of things, sometimes out of jealousy, sometimes out of spite, sometimes just out of hatred for no reason. Kids especially can be cruel. And just dealing with all that stuff. And I had to learn, even with a, at that age, with a call of God on my life, that I did not live to please people, but I lived to please God. Somebody say amen. In this first section, 
Paul talks about the importance of faithfulness and stewardship. It is stewardship faithfulness. A steward is someone who has been given the responsibility, given, past tense, the responsibility over property or something of value. Um, When I was growing up a thousand years ago, when I was in high school, 40 years ago, I remember taking an accounting class and we talked about a fiduciary, kind of a $10 word for someone who has the responsibility of managing the economics or the finances of a wealthy family. A fiduciary was considered to be one of the highest character and integrity, uh, an individual of, of great trust. The word is tied to trust. A trust as a legal document or a legal tool is an investment that has been taken into the care, has been entrusted. It's the same Greek word for steward, okay? And so someone who stewards a wealthy family's finances is entrusted with the responsibility of watching the market, buying and selling stocks, buying and selling gold, commodities, um, investments in companies, buying land, real estate, flipping houses, whatever it is that that family does or that you're doing, you're responsible for, 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 for doing the alts and taking care of the debits and the credits and balancing the books and making sure that everything is continuing to grow and not diminish. And so Paul uses this concept here in terms of stewardship faithfulness over the deposit of God, over the thing of value in the lives of the people in this church at Thessalonica. And you're going to see a repeating phrase as they put it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at this. You see, you yourselves know. Say that. You yourselves know. You will see, you know, you will see as you well know over and over and over again because Paul is speaking from a place of demonstration. The people knew what Paul was writing was the truth because they had seen it lived by him and by his team, by Paul and by Silas and by Timothy. And he begins and he says, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. He says, you know, there it is again. Everybody say, you know. He says, you know how badly we had been treated at Philippi just before we came to you and how much we suffered there yet. Everybody say yet. I don't care what you're going through right now, how hard the road is you're traveling. God has a yet for you. Yet, our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. Some of you have traveled a broken road. What is that, Rascal Flats? God bless the broken road and... Brought me straight to you. How many of you know every one of us came on a broken road to God? God bless that broken road. Hallelujah. He called my baby girl a couple weeks ago and asked her to write some music with him. He got Gary LaVox. That's pretty cool. You know how badly we'd been treated at Philippi, he says, and he says, the good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. The, The term for opposition there is an athletic term. It literally means a contest or a struggle. Paul was very fond of Olympic terminology. He talked about running a race and boxing. He talked about pressing, like the weightlifter, pressing toward the mark for the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
He talked about battling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And there is opposition that we stand against. When you make the decision to walk with God, there are consequences. And there is a world system. There is a spiritual wickedness and a force in high places that will do everything it can to hinder you and distract you and turn you away from your commitment to God. You better wake up and you better grow up because if you do anything that's worth living for and worth lasting for, somebody is going to be contrary to what you say and what you do. Somebody is going to be against. Somebody is going to oppose. Somebody is going to challenge you. No matter what you do, grow a business with godly principles. Finish your education to the glory of God to determine your destiny. Start a business. Raise a family. Find a wife. Marry a husband. Birth some babies save you money, whatever you do, whatever you do, there's always opposition. It's, we're, we're living in a fantasy world when we think that everything is just easy peasy. Just because you have a problem doesn't mean it's time to quit. Everybody say, trust God, work hard, never quit. That's the ethos of my family right there. He says, so you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or impure uh, or trickery, he says. There was, there was no bait and switch. There was no bait the hook. You know, there's, there's a difference in Christian evangelism and Christian salesmanship. We're not trying to trap people into salvation. We want to, we want to share the love of God and share Jesus. We want to do it in such a way that draws people and doesn't repel them. Come on, you can, you can just be all gung-ho and full of zeal, and you can turn everybody off that's all around you. There's some wisdom in this. Somebody say amen. He says, for we speak as messengers approved by God. And here it is right here. Here's the word. What's that word? Say it. And that's the word steward right there in the Greek. You are, you've been in, given the stewardship of the gospel, entrusted with the good news. Paul talks about the stewardship of the mysteries of God. So he's been given the charge of investing it and watching it grow and multiply in the lives of people. It's a deposit of something that is of great value. And he says, we've been entrusted with the good news. He says, our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. So what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing with the stewardship you have over your children, over your spouse? You know, when God gave you her, the Bible says, he that finds a wife finds a good thing. That's the favor of the Lord on your life. Well, guess what, sir? Now it is your responsibilities to steward and to build into and to invest in her life. Come on. Somebody in the back's Holy Ghost moving in the back back there. You, 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 you want to raise champions. You want to raise children that are going to be that are going to be filled with faith and that are willing to take on whatever opposition they face and trust God for big things and overcome hurdles and climb mountains and, and be able to do things to the glory of God. You won't do that spending your whole time 80 hours a week at work and never praying with your kids and talking to them and loving on them. Too many people in this current American culture want to give their kids things and kids just want some time with dad and time with mom. How are you handling the things that you've been called a steward? How are you handling your money? Are you giving to God what's His? Are you honoring God with what, what the Bible says belongs to the Lord? That's the tenth, that's the tithe. 
Are you, are you giving generously? My mama, I'm, I'm going to tell you, from the time we were little bitty kids, mama would put a dime or a quarter, uh, 50 cents. I'm not drunk up here this morning. I promise you. I've got Sprite in here and that's water. So and in case anybody's wondering, she would put a quarter in my hand and she, I would say, she'd say, put that in the offering. And I'd say, well, why are you giving it to me? Why don't you just put it in the offering? She says, because the scripture says, don't appear before the Lord empty-handed. So my mama taught me every time I go to the house of God, put something in the plate. And, you know, whether you do that text to give or you write a check or you paid monthly and so you write a monthly check, that's fine. But I believe that when you come to the house of God, you ought to come with worship. You ought to come thanksgiving. You ought to come with praise. You ought to put a piece of your life into the offering plate and say, God, I ask you to bless it. Let me tell you something. Some of you folks in this room want to harvest, but you don't want to sow any seed. A baby is need conscious. Adults understand that we have to grow into a seed consciousness. We have to make investments. Are you invested in this vision here? Let me tell you something. I grew up in a church in Memphis. I was 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, sitting on a platform, massive nine-foot uh, concert grand piano, and I Hammond, and I played both of them over the years, and I remembered there were times they took an hour and a half to take the offering because they way overbuilt beyond what they should have built. Some of that was the requirement of the city because they were in Hind Park. It was a very, very, very elite neighborhood of way back then, three, $400,000 houses. They're million-dollar homes in that neighborhood now, over there around Rhodes College. And so they way overbuilt, and they would pull and pull and pull. And I sat in that, those services, and I would say, Father, if you ever let me pastor a church, I know the call of God's on my life. If you ever let me plant a church with the vision you've given me, I promise you I won't do that. And I'm going to tell you something. I knee-jerked that and went the other way and just lived on raw faith for years. And the Spirit of the Lord convicted me, and he said, You've not been faithful to teach my people the biblical principles of economics and how important it is to sow seeds and to be generous because God will bless the generous. He loves the cheerful, generous giver. Now, some of you don't like talking about that, and I'm going to speak to you in this next verse. Here it comes. Are you ready? Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as well you know. There he says it again, as, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your what? Folk, I'm going to tell you, people ask me all the time, what do I do? And I'll do everything I can before I tell them I'm a preacher. Because, you know, there was a day that it was a highly respected position in the community. Right now we're down there with probably the worst used car salesman. Nothing wrong with selling used cars. We've got some used car salesmen in our church, and you're honest people, and I thank God for you. But it reminds me of... The Andy Griffith show when Barney bought that old car and it had sawdust in the transmission and the steering wheel starts coming up out of the thing there. Remember that episode? Well, I was on a plane one time and somebody asked me what I did. And I didn't want to tell him I was a preacher. I said, I work for the government. <laughs> and I do. It's the kingdom of God. I work for the government. I didn't want to say. Because there's been so much manipulation, so much trickery, so much deception on television, on my God, Christian television, just beating people up, manipulating them. And you know, we have never done that here. But you know what? You can go to the opposite extreme. You know, and Paul says this, this is not new. This is not just something that's happened in the 20th, the late 20th and the early 21st century. This was something Paul was battling because they were lying on him and saying, oh, he's just here befriending you and flattering you just so he can get his hands in your pockets. 
They were telling it on him then that he was just there to get their money. And he said, as you well know, and he's about to tell us in the next verses, guess what, folk? I determined that I was not going to be a burden on the church, and I have another job. I'm bivocational. I build tents. I make tents. He had a tent-making business. That's something that everybody on our team does. From the beginning, when I planted this church, I worked for Health First Medical Group, in Memphis, Tennessee, which was the health provider organization for Prucare, for Prudential Insurance. And I was a junior accountant for them, and I did that because I did not want the church to suffer. And so we stacked up money just trying to get ready for the future. I went full-time for a little while, and I needed some more money. I'm raising a growing family, and stuff is expensive. And so I went before the Lord, and I said, Lord, what should I do? And he said, what's in your hand? He asked me the same question that he asked Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And Moses says, a rod. And, and the rod of Moses, when it got put in the hands of God, became known as the rod of God. And so the Lord said, what's in your hand? And I said, well, I, I, I've got a musical gift. And he said, there it is right there. So I started teaching piano, and it became a very blessed part of my life so that I could pay off some bills and get out of debt. How many know God will bless you? Now listen, folks, he's not going to zip the heavens open and drop your lunch down. The way he blesses you is through your job. Quit bad-mouthing your employer and start praying for blessing on them because if God will bless them, he will give you a promotion. He will bless your sales. Come on, he'll bless your, your entrepreneurial spirit and your business, but you've got to show... Some, some Christians are afraid to work. They're allergic to it. And they think, well, I'm a Christian. The boss is a Christian. He's got to forgive me. No, what he's probably got to do is fire your butt and say, be blessed. This wasn't in the first message. I don't know who that's for this morning, but somebody. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. This whole, as you well know, appears through the whole book. Chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 1. Verse 5, verse 11. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. He says, you know, you know, as you well know, you know this. We've done and we've demonstrated this before you. We've lived this before you. Three pictures, quickly. He shows, first of all, the love of the mother, the motherly love. This is a man. This is an apostle. This is Paul. And yet he's describing his ministry like the ministry of a mother. He says, as apostles of Christ, verse 7, we certainly had a right to make some demands on you, but instead we were like children among you. He says, or we were like a what? Everybody say a mother. And what's mother doing? Now, what does a mother do? A mother literally gives out of her own life. This is obvious. You know, our old world, we don't have technology. There are no bottles. Dads can't participate in the nursing process. Forgive me, I don't want to be crass, but moms, you're equipped, okay? Forgive me, but this is so. And so they, they saw this as the early stages of a child's life were primarily the responsibility of the nurturing, loving care of a mother. And so Paul is likening that to his current pastoral care over all these new babies. I am feeding you. I'm giving you out of my own source of life. A mother has to eat right and make sure that she's getting all the nutrition herself so that her body will make good milk for the baby. The Bible says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, as as, sincere, as, 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 as newborn babes in Christ desire the sincere milk of the Word. So every time I come in here, I've got to make sure that I've got a, a fresh glass of milk for the babes. But we've got some 
teenagers in the spirit, so we've got some good bread that's been baked up from the word, but we also have some meat that God has brought to us in due season. And so everybody's got something to eat. Every time we spread the table of the Lord's word, if you'll come in here hungry, you will leave fed. Come on, somebody. But I want to say this to you. Every child that grows, that grows an appetite, my little six-year-old grandson, Henry Wade's already reaching for the spoon he wants to feed himself. <laughs> I've got a picture of Drew when he was six months old, and Dawn gave him, uh, across his high chair, some chicken spaghetti. And the chicken was little bitty tiny pieces that cut, they were almost chewed already, and little pieces of spaghetti that he wouldn't choke on. Drew, literally, in the picture that I took, his mouth is down there, and he's raking it with his hand. And who his, it's all over him. It's on the wall behind him. Why do I take the time to tell that story? Because medical professionals will tell you this. Your appetite is an indication of your health. How many of you hungry for the word this morning? How many of you hungry for the spirit of God in your life? Well, pastor, if I were honest, I really can't tell you that I'm that hungry. Well, guess what? You know what? We are a loving motherly congregation. You're in the hospital sick. We will sit with you and we will spoon feed you. We will love on and nurture and take care of the babies. But guess what? When you're 18, you're still in a diaper. It's time to do some adulting. It's time to grow up. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, grow up. A nursing mother imparts her own life to the child. We eat properly. Moms eat properly and they give of themselves to their own children. He says, we loved you so much, verse 8, that we shared with you not only God's good news, we didn't just talk about the gospel, but with our own lives. Our lives were a demonstration. Our life matched our lip. Our walk matched our talk. What we were saying was something that we were already demonstrating in front of you. The quality of an effective leader is not in his or her articulation of principles or words of knowledge, but it's in the example of that leader's life. Does her life match her lip? Does his walk match his talk? Somebody say amen. amen. Growth is not automatic. It requires love and responsibility. The next picture that he gives us is that of fatherly concern. Verse 9, don't, don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked? Everybody say worked. We're going to come back to that. He says, night and day we toil to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preach God's good news to you. This is the leader's work. How are you living out there in the world? I think, I think sometimes that's the problem with pastors because they have been so far removed from the real workaday world that ordinary saints live in that they forget the pressures and the deadlines and the worry and the stress and they manipulate and they put too much pressure on the people because they're so far distant from it themselves. I think it's a good thing sometimes to, to, to be bivocational. I know there are a lot of folks that totally press the fact that, no, you need to be solely dedicated to the Word. Everybody I see in the Bible had a trade besides their ministry. Don't shout me down. You yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of the believers. This is the leader's walk. This is the fact that I've got a relationship with the Lord that's alive. You can see it. It's in my eyes. It's in my tone. Doesn't mean I don't have problems. Doesn't mean I won't be sad, but I won't stay that way because I know who my hope is in. I know how to put my trust in the Lord. I, I, I've come through an indescribable season of grief 
but I've got a new hope. It's alive and it's fresh. And it's because I'm in touch with a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Come on, somebody. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Hallelujah. We're devout. We're honest. How we deal with people is not out of manipulation or intimidation. We tell the truth. We have integrity. We're honest. Faultless. I'm not afraid of that word. That doesn't mean I'm perfect, but it means as far as anyone being able to, to bring reproach to me out of an accusation, we're to be faultless. Leaders are to be faultless before the Lord. Now, we're to be teachable. We're to be correctable. You know what? I still have had attitudes. I've had to go to folks and say, will you forgive me? I, I responded improperly. I had a bad attitude when I said that. You know something? This was a quote that I, I, I tried to share in the first service last week, and I forgot it, so I didn't even go near it in the second service. I follow a, a podcast, Craig Groeschel, who is a phenomenal leader, great writer of books. He does podcasts. He, he pastors Life Church out of Edmond, Oklahoma, and he actually has 35 campuses around the U.S. that all beam in by satellite his messages every Sunday and, and campus pastors in those satellite locations. Phenomenal leader, great leader. We, we look to him. We utilize his podcast to help our leadership be sharpened. And uh, Craig always ends every podcast by saying it this way. He says, most people would rather follow a leader who is real, always real, rather than to follow a leader who is always right. Now think about that. And when he said that, I latched on that because we've always really strove, striven, strived, whatever the past tense of strive is. We've always, we've we've been trying to deal with it anyway. We have strived to be real as possible. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Just, just keep it real. If we're struggling, we say it. Because I believe so many times the church in places, especially in the, the churchianity of the South, the fundamentalism, the Pharisaism, the legalism, we, we, we say we love everybody and, and they come in the door, but everybody's living behind closed doors in an arm's length relationship and they're preaching this such a hard legalistic word that everybody's afraid to actually bring to light what they're struggling with. And so their struggles stay hidden in a closet somewhere. And the Bible says that any struggle that we have, what is detrimental to it? It's just like bleach will kill the coronavirus. When you can get brave enough just to drag it into the light and say, pray for me, I'm struggling with this. It's like the devil just has to sliver, just wither away. Light. When you bring it into the light, when you get real, The first step to breaking your addiction is you're breaking denial. And that's not a river in Egypt. You break denial in your life and you acknowledge it. You say, I have a struggle. And you get real. All right, you get anything out of this? So we talked about the leader's work and the leader's walk. And he says, and you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. Now he's starting to talk about his words. How do you raise your kids? How do you treat them? You know, you may have been... You may have inherited the treatment of an abusive parent, but guess what? That mess can stop with your generation. You don't have to beat your kids up physically or verbally or, God forbid, any other kind of way. Whatever was done to you, deal with it and let go of it and let God make you a better parent than you were parented. Steward your children. Steward your family, steward your business, steward your finances, steward your wife, steward your husband. Be faithful to them, to build into them. Come on, I'm helping somebody this morning. 
He says, we pleaded with you, we encouraged you, we urged you. Those are all words that describe the words he was using. We pled with you. We, we gave you words that built you up. We encouraged you. We showed you the urgency that you're to live lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Now, folks, he called you to salvation. That's in the past. But he continuously calls you to live a life worthy of his calling on you. For the kingdom of God, for the glory of God. So a leader's walk, a leader's work, and a leader's words must demonstrate. These pictures are pictures of the Father, pictures of God. Because God is not only Father, He's also Mother. El Shaddai, that I told you about before we started the, the, the teaching, El Shaddai literally means the many-breasted one. I don't want to be crass. It means God with breasts. And it's the mother side of God. It's the one that draws us to his breast, her, and suckles us and comforts us. It's the love of the mother. But guess what? El Shaddai doesn't keep you there. Because El Shaddai is going to introduce you to El Elyon, the God Most High. He's the father God who's going to make demands on your life and grow you up. Growth is not automatic. It comes through love, the love of the mother, and the responsibility of the father. It's both together. It's not an accident that God made male and female, that he made a man and a woman, because it would take both of them together to give a full representation of the image of God. Because God is not a man. God is not male. God is not just father. He is father and mother. Because both together, husband and wife, male and female, both together give us a full picture of the nature of God. That's so good. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. <laughs> Growth is not automatic. It requires love and responsibility. Last section, and I'm finished. Tools and tips for growth. We all have growing pains we, we go through. Just, just dealing with life. This church had growing pains. It was not easy to be a believer in Thessalonica. Chapter 1, verse 6, we said last week that they gladly received the word, their message, even though it caused severe suffering for them. There were Jewish people that were against them, that persecuted them, that afflicted them, that were against them, opposing them, contrary to them in every kind of way. They faced persecution and great suffering. Three things that will help us through our difficult seasons. Number one, the word within you. Everybody say, the word inside me. Come on. Verse 13, therefore we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accept it. Everybody say accept it. Accept what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this is last week's principle right here. Here we go. Say it. And this word continues to work in you who believe. There it is right there. The word will work if you work the word. They accepted the word. They appreciated the word. They appropriated the word. There are two different words for receive the Apostle Paul uses here in the Greek. The first one means to accept from another. The second one means to welcome with gladness. To accept from another is the hearing of the ear. To welcome is the hearing of the heart. There's a difference. There's another layer. Everybody in the room has two pieces of flesh on the side of your head and probably some degree of the faculty of hearing. Although I want to say that as I'm getting older, it's not as good as it used to be. Let 
Jesus warned people about what they heard. There was warning in a number of parables. As a matter of fact, the most repeated phrase for Jesus in all of the Gospels and throughout the book of Revelation it was, he said, to him that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Everybody out there on the side of the hill on the Sermon on the Mount had these flaps on the side of their head. But what he was saying was, just because you've got these doesn't mean you've got an ear down in here. Folks, if you can hear what I'm saying this morning, and I'm not talking about auditory signals or impulses that are traveling through the air, I'm talking about spiritual discernment. Can you hear with your heart? Everybody can't hear. Everybody doesn't hear. That's sad, but everybody doesn't hear. Matter of fact, there is in these days a famine for the hearing of the words of the Lord. Amos chapter 8 verse 11 says, In the last days there will be a famine for the hearing of the words of the Lord. It doesn't say there will be a famine for the words of the Lord. It's being blasted from satellites and shortwave radio and MP3s and MP4s and radio stations and the Internet all over the place. The Word of God is resounding all over the globe, but there is a generation before us right now in America that there's a famine for the hearing of the words of the Lord. We're dull. We're stubborn. We're willful against the Word of God, and we want to pick and choose. Let me tell you something. If you say that you believe the gospel, but you say, no, I'm leaving that part off, and I like that, I'm going to emphasize that, take more of that, but no, I'm cutting that off. How many of you know what you believe is not the gospel, but it's your idolatrous form of what you think is the gospel, which is not the gospel? Paul wrote to, in the book of Acts, and he says, I have not failed to bring to you the whole counsel of the Word of God. Everybody say the whole book. All right, that means you can't throw out what you don't like. Jesus warned them with the wrong kind of hearing. He said, take heed that you hear. He took it a level further in another parable. He said, take heed what you hear. Meditate on it. Consider it. Make it a part of you. Assimilate it. And finally, he said, take heed how you hear. Anybody hearing that this morning? The Bible is meant to be bread for daily food, folk, and not cake for special occasions. Happy birthday to you. Don't shout me down. You want to grow in God? Crack the book. It is the most bought. It is the most high record sales. And in, among some circles, it is the least read. I got challenged when I was in my first year of college because a bunch of guys said, you know, what are we going to do when we get to heaven? And Amos said, hey, did you ever read my book? Joel says, hey, did you read what I had to say to the people of God? And so we all challenged each other, a bunch of freshmen in college. And that year I read through the Bible for the very first time in my life at 18. And I've never put it down since then. I have read through it every year for the last 40 years, sometimes two and even the third time through every year. Now, everybody can't do that. Everybody doesn't want to do that. But you can, you can get you a program where you can read through the Bible over a three-year period. You can read a chapter a day. It's 1,189 chapters. Three years. Do you know that the whole Bible can be read through in the period of about 81 hours, cover to cover? Do you know it's not a matter of you don't have time, it's a matter of you don't have the desire to do it? Let's, let's just get real and honest here this morning. I'm wrapping this up, and I know nobody likes to be should on, but you should pick up your Bible and read it. You should pray. If you're going to grow, if you're going to mature, you need to understand my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. We don't worship the book. We don't have a relationship with the book. But the book is important because it tells us about the one the book's written about, and his name is Jesus. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise.
I'm skipping stuff because we want to celebrate these baptisms. Second and third, the, the second one is the people around you. You will be the same person you are five years from now except the books you read and the people you hang with. Pastor, you just don't know the problems the folk have that are around me. I can't change the people around me. Yeah, but you could change the people that are around you. Some of you caught that. Then, dear brothers and sisters, verse 14, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen in this way. You imitated the believers in God's churches. Find somebody that can mentor you. It's not just about being evangelized and being born in the kingdom. It's about growing up and becoming a disciple. Nowhere did Jesus tell us to go and make Baptists. He didn't tell us to go and make Christians. He didn't tell us to go and make believers. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, because of their belief in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 15. I've got to say something real quick about this. He says, for some of the Jews killed the prophets and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They failed to please God and work against all humanity. You start talking like this, and this is in the Bible. Some folk take this out of context, and they use this to justify their anti-Semitism, to hate the Jewish people. But you, forgive me, I'm going to talk straight. I'm going to keep it real. You are a fool if you blame all of any people group because what some of that people group did. You can't hate all black people because a couple of thugs did something to you one time in your life. You can't hate all white people because you've met a couple of racists. Because all white people are not that way. Now let me tell you something. Everybody in here is probably still pulling down some strongholds in our thinking because we've been marinated in this stinking plantation mentality in the South. But by the grace of God, we are going to see a people raised up that loves and forgives those who did us wrong and we refuse to judge a whole people group by what some of that people group did. I wish somebody would help me preach in here a little bit this morning. Come on. You better deal with your racism. You're not going to take that mess into the kingdom of God. As they try to keep us from preaching the good news of... Man, man, I'm, I'm going I'm to preach. Glory to God. Help me finish, Holy Ghost. Try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins, but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. People done you wrong, let God handle it. Forgive them and let it go. Let it go. God will deal with it. Finally, the glory of God ahead. He talked about the word within, the people around me, and the glory of God ahead of me. Look, when you look back, you're going to spend your life in regret. When you look ahead, you can rejoice. Because there's better ahead. My best days are ahead. Victory's just getting started. Its best days are yet to come. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated, I don't have time. Talked about being orphaned from him for a while. He says, through our hearts have never left you. We tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. King James uses the word hindered. The Greek word literally means, a, it's a word picture. It's a picture of a road that's so broken that travel is blocked. He's throwing up obstacles. I started the service by saying this. God bless the broken road. Everybody in here has come to God on a broken road. 
a broken road of addiction, a broken road of a failed marriage, a broken road of a messed up failed business, a broken road of just a plain, complete jacked up life. Everybody's come through a broken road. Come on. Don't, let, don't blame Satan uh, sometimes for our own choices. But Les, let me tell you, anything you decide to do for God, there will always be opposition. Get it settled in your mind. Because God will make another way. He's got the heavenly GPS system. He can just say recalculating, recalculating, and he can send you on another path. Hallelujah. Finally, Paul said finally, and he wrote two more chapters. This truly is my finally. After all, what gives us hope and joy, what will be our, our proud reward and crown? Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with the reminder that Jesus is coming. He's coming back. Be ready. What, will be, what gives us hope and joy? What will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before the Lord Jesus when he returns? Say it. What does he say? Say it with me. It is you. My crown of glory as a pastor is you. That's the pastor's crown that you will inherit. Crown of righteousness. Crown of hope. Crown of glory. I don't care what kind of crowns you get. The Bible says when we do see him seated on the throne that we're going to take our crowns and cast them at his feet. <laughs> Hallelujah. He says, yes, you are our pride and joy. We look backward in regret. You know what? That's a dead end. Everybody in the room's got a past. Everybody in the room's got something they sure hope nobody ever finds out about. But if you know Jesus, it's covered in the blood. Dr. Billy Graham said God takes our sins and removes them as far from us as the east is from the west. He throws them into the sea of forgetfulness and he posts a sign, no fishing. Think about this. You can go so far north that you will eventually start going south. Thousands of years before we had astronomers that proved this, some poet prophet in the Bible said, as far as the east is from the west, God has so far removed our sins from us. East and west are not like north and south because if you start going east, you never do turn around and start going west because they're infinitely removed from each other. East and west never meet. It, it, why, you know, why, why didn't he say north and south? I, they didn't know that. They didn't have the scientific proof. Galileo hadn't come along yet and upset the whole world. Perni the Copernican theory hadn't been proven yet. But some prophet heard from God and said, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. And the scripture says he's not only removed them, but he's forgotten them. Somebody in this room right now, this was not in my first message, but I'm ending this prophetically. Somebody in the room, you know you have been forgiven, but you can't forget. God's forgotten it. You need to let it go. You need to forgive yourself. Abby and I had some very intimate, we were nine days, I guess 14 days together in New York and then Rome, and we had about four different very, very, very intimate father-to-daughter, daughter-to-father, heart-to-heart conversations. And I said, you know, I've, I've had a thing that's been coming up in me over the years, just some stupid things I said as a kid that they come up and I just cringe. I can feel it as a physiological response. My body tightens up, and I just go, oh, I wish I'd have never said that. And I told Abby about this, and I said, you know what? Two weeks ago, before this trip, it came up again, and I just said, enough. I've prayed over this a thousand times. And I said it out loud and I said, I forgive myself for the stupid things I said as a preteen. The things I said as a teenager that were just wrong. I forgive myself. 
And you know, something's changed in my own emotions, in my own psyche. Somebody in this room, you've prayed and God's let it go. He's forgotten about it, but you're still carrying the memory of it. And you need to just right now in this service say, Father God, I know this is gone. I know you removed it, but I choose, I choose to forgive myself. I don't know what it is. Nobody else needs to know. That's between you and the Lord. Right now, if you would, every head bowed, every eye closed. I believe God's spirit is in this place today. I believe this message has been alive and there's something in it for everybody in the room. As we prepare today to celebrate these four, they're gonna be baptized. In just this moment, you have an opportunity right now to have a fresh start, to turn to the Lord. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you're on a broken road, you've got opposition, nothing's going right. You know what? Let's don't blame that on the devil. Maybe God's trying to get your attention. Maybe he's wanting to show you a better road you can be on. Heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody looking around. Very simply, it's a choice to turn away from that and turn to God. That's what the word repent means. Change your mind. Change your direction. It's, it's a U-turn in the road. You're going one way and all of a sudden you do a U-turn and you turn and go the other way. U-turn. That's repent. If that's you this morning, if you've sensed the Spirit of God drawing you, reminding you how much you are loved, this is not a performance thing. This is not, you've got to work your way into it because nobody has good enough works, only Jesus. His forgiveness is free. His love is everlasting. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If that's you and you're ready to cross that line of faith with me this morning, or you need a prayer for anything, slip your hand up. I want to pray for you right now. All around the room. I believe some of those are salvation. Some of those are various needs. And we just lift them to the Lord right now. If you would, congregation, pray with me. And saints, in a moment, I'm going to tell you when to say these words. I want everybody in the room to pray these words after me. But I'm going to begin by myself. Father, I thank you today for this message. And I pray, oh God, that you take these words and you plant them deeply like seeds in the hearts of all of these people. Let your word within us, the people around us, and the glory of God that is ahead of us lead and guide us, O oh God. And right now, Lord, those that are at a turning point, those that are at a juncture in their life, a change, a transformative place, we look to you. Those of you that lifted your hands, pray this out loud. Congregation, let's pray with them. Everybody say this after me. Father... In Jesus' name, I lean into you. I put my trust in you. I turn from the direction I was going, and I put my hope and faith in you. Forgive my sins. Jesus, save me. I trust you. Be Lord of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. It is in the name of Jesus that I pray. And all of God's people said,